I'm Adair Turner. At the moment, I'm writing a book about the trouble with finance, but I have been chairman of the Financial Services Authority till the end of March, and before that I was also chairman of the UK's Climate Change Committee, which is responsible for recommending to government our greenhouse gas emission reduction targets and also recommending how we achieve those targets. And I was the first chairman of that from 2008 to 2012. Um, So Lord Stern recently stated that he felt things in relation to climate change were far more serious than he had recognised when he wrote the Stern report and that if he were writing it now, he would do it very differently. What's your sense of, of where we are in relation to climate change? Where are we in relation to climate change? I think we need to say the following things. Uh, First, it is obviously the case, and the uh, sceptics about climate change focus on this, that the average global temperature, land surface temperature, having increased far faster than the models suggested in the 80s and 90s, has for the last 10 years been at some sort of plateau. Uh, I don't think there is anything. I think it's incredibly important that uh, those of us who believe very strongly that climate change is occurring, that we are open to looking at the data and seeing what it tells us. But I don't think it does change uh, the point of view as to the long-term trajectory. There are these oscillations over time. And what is strange in some ways is that that fact that there has been a stalling Uh, of the rate of increase of the average measured temperature for this 10 years is combined by other things which actually suggest change occurring at a faster pace. For instance, the decline over uh, the last 10 years in the coverage of Arctic summer ice is running clearly far faster than anybody anticipated 10 years ago. So I think in the science... I'm not sure that much has changed. I don't don't think the balance of it overall has changed. I don't think we are sitting there saying we know that climate change, global warming, is going to occur faster, but equally well, I don't think it's going to occur slower than we uh, originally predicted, uh, given any any given level of carbon emissions. I think what has changed is that, bluntly, A lot of our optimistic beliefs that by 2016 we would reach a peak in global carbon and greenhouse gas emissions and then start a reduction are looking extraordinarily optimistic. Uh, The amazing continued economic success of China, since Nick wrote his, uh, his report, has been at one level a great positive for the Chinese people, and I think we have to recognise that. But it has been incredibly carbon-intensive, it's been very heavy industry-intensive. And so I think we're now looking at a set of forecasts of the pace of global carbon emissions growth, uh, which makes the achievement of the sort of reductions that Nick was talking about in his report by 2050 uh, very difficult, but still very important to achieve. And so I think we are at the point where the focus really has to turn back to what is it that we need to do to actually get um, the uh, greenhouse gas emissions uh, on a downward path. And the environmental philanthropist Jeremy Grantham recently said, capitalism does millions of things better than the alternatives. It balances supply and demand in an elegant way that central planning has never come close to. 
However, it's totally ill-equipped to deal with a small handful of issues. Unfortunately, they are the issues that are absolutely central to our long-term well-being and even survival. Do you think that, that, that well-being, that, that, that capitalism and getting climate change really under control are compatible? I think that capitalism, the market economy, is a remarkable system for delivering uh, growth and increases in prosperity, which over a certain range of income is a very important thing to do. I also think that beyond some level of average income, and maybe it's roughly where the rich developed world got to 20 or 30 years, further improvements in average GDP per capita are not the most important thing. But I still believe that even in that environment where that is less important, the market economy you know, still has a lot of contribution to make and a planned economy actually addresses a lot of environmental issues worse than a market economy. I mean, the, the Soviet Union was a planned economy. It was a complete disaster from an environmental point of view. Where I would agree with Jeremy Grantham is that when we face what economists call these very large externalities, these things which the private sector, an individual, will not take into account because they're caught in a sort of, well, why should I take it into account if nobody else isn't type trap? We need to manage capitalism. So to me, it's not, are we going to have a capitalist and market economy or not? I see no real alternative to that. I don't think there is political support to that. I think the alternatives are uh, less advantageous. Um, but I think we are, it has always been the case that there are some aspects of capitalism that need to be managed. Uh, I am, in the book I'm now writing, struggling with one of those aspects, which is the financial system needs managing more than the market for restaurants. I mean, the market for restaurants works pretty well. I mean, if you want good restaurants, just let a thousand entrepreneurial flowers bloom. Some will work, some won't. You know, consumers will decide what they like, etc. The market for finance works pretty badly. It careers off in all sorts of... Uh, crazy directions and it needs to be managed and I think where Jeremy Grantham is right is that the challenges of climate change in particular are one where we need to not rely on capitalism and the market economy to solve the problems but manage it and constrain it and place it within public policy so that it can help solve them. Well, we have got to make it solve, uh, make the market economy help solve the problems of climate change rather than ever assuming that it will completely left to itself. And is it possible in the time that we have to decouple um, economic growth from carbon emissions? Because That's a very interesting point. Um, my overall point to you is that when you get beyond a certain standard of living, Economic growth is not the most important end. It is also my point of view that if you allow economic freedom, and I think economic freedom is a, is a value in itself, which is a point that Amartya Sen makes, that uh, you know, the freedom to decide where to work, what to do, who to contract with, uh, what to consume, that, that is a freedom of value irrespective or whether or not that freedom produces economic growth, etc. And if you have that freedom, I suspect we will still have something which will be called growth and will still produce 
an increase in the thing which we measure uh, in GDP per capita, remembering that GDP per capita is an extraordinary arbitrary convention, and it is what it is, and you should never understand it as being anything other than uh, the the set of definitions that that drive it. But I suspect that there are there are very different paths, each of which would produce some growth in, in GDP per capita, some of which are compatible with containing climate change and some are not. So I don't think people should get hung up on, oh, I want to produce a path where GDP per capita no longer increases. I think one should want to produce a path where we are certain that we are dealing with challenges like climate change I think that path will probably still, as it happens, produce an increase in measured GDP because people will be doing things that show up in measured GDP because other people value them. Um, But I don't think that's the most important thing to concentrate on. Because I I interviewed a while ago with Kevin Anderson at the Tyndall Centre for Climate Change and his his analysis was that that the developed world needs to be cutting emissions by 10% a year starting now and that that is fundamentally incompatible with... Well, if we can, I think if we need to cut at 10% a year starting now, bluntly, I think we have a huge problem. I think in the Climate Change Committee, we thought that the rich developed world, UK, is quite capable of cutting at 4% per annum, um, could achieve an 80% reduction below 1990 levels by 2050, um, and could do that in a way which will politically work. I fear that if we are really right that we have to cut at 10% per annum, we may fail in this endeavour. Now, that will, be, that will be terrible and it will be harmful for future generations, but I think there is a pace beyond which... There's a pace beyond which your fundamental problem is your installed capital stock. We have a whole load of cars out there on the road that people do not feel they can afford to change, except about once every seven years. Mm. However fast you improve the efficiency of cars, that seven-year cycle creates a limit to how fast you will get down you know, grams per kilometre, because you have a person who has bought a 200 grams per kilometre car, and even if you can convince them this was a crazy thing to do, they're sitting on that, and they can't afford a new one. So I hope he's wrong. Uh, I, I hope he's wrong, um, because if we really do need to go that fast, which is faster than other people have suggested, I think we're going to find it incredibly difficult politically to get the support to achieve that. And you've, you've moved within the corridors of power in your role of, of, on the Climate Change Committee. From, from the outside, it looks as though tackling climate change has taken a back seat uh, to economic growth. And uh, Owen Patterson, on any questions... On Friday, so the climate temperature has not changed for 17 years and was very dismissive of the whole. An environment minister, secretary, doesn't believe in climate change. What's your sense of, of that? Can we expect any leadership on, on climate change from government, or does it really. I think it's going to be difficult to get uh, leadership. I mean, it is still the case that when the Climate Change Committee, I'm trying to remember now, back in 2011, I guess it was, proposed the budget for the mid. 2020s. Um, There was a dispute in government, but we won, and there was a commitment to a very stretching target, which is now legally embedded. Um, 
And so you can still say of this government that in things like the overall targets, they have still stuck to it. I think what is the case is that there is... um, You are absolutely right. I think we have an environment secretary now who is a sceptic about this. I think he's completely wrong, but he is a a sceptic on it. And I think he, on that quote you just gave, is guilty of picking a particular fact which supports his case and not another fact which would support the alternative case, such as the extraordinary rapid reduction uh, in the Arctic summer ice. Um, I think the other difficulty that we have... We also have a difficulty which is partly a difficulty of a perverse success. The fact is that UK greenhouse gas emissions are running below the targets of the Climate Change Act uh, for the simple fact that the um, for the reason that the financial system managed to cook up a whacking great recession. Now, this is the worst possible way to achieve, I think, a reduction in emissions. But it does enable some people in government to say, well, hang on, what are you talking about? I mean, we, we set these targets and we're, we're going down faster than these targets. As the Climate Change Committee has pointed out, the danger is that if your emissions simply go down because you have a recession you're not achieving the long-term transformation of the economy. And as the economy recovers, uh, we will be back to the problems as before. So I think it's a mixed bag. I think the overall story is that climate change in the UK, having reached a sort of apogee of political support at the time of the passing of the Climate Change Act, which got a quite formidable and an extraordinary degree of cross-party support um, that it has uh, moved onto the back burner um, but I think that's why it's important to keep up relentless pressure for particular aspects of policy which are important for the long term and we recently passed 400 parts per million for the yep. first time and as someone who's been involved in all of this how, how did that affect you what, what was well as I said earlier I think the difficulty of those who believe this is a huge problem we've got to deal with, is that we're simultaneously looking at two facts. One, the slowdown, which I think the best science suggests is entirely cyclical in the increase in global temperatures. That's one. But two, and therefore that enables the sceptics to say, well, haven't you overstated it? Even if it's occurring, isn't it occurring slower than we thought? But two... The growth in emissions and concentrations is just, you know, marching on at a continual upward path. And the 400 grams, uh, the the, the 400 parts per million uh, measurements uh, are, has been reached, you know, as rapidly as any of the forecasts in the IPCC reports suggested. The idea that we have the capacity to stop this occurring at 450 I think is looking extraordinarily optimistic and that is uh, that is depressing yeah it's depressing Um, if uh, Kevin Anderson were right and that staying below two degrees is incompatible with with economic growth as we have known it what for you might a post growth economy look like well can I say I don't think we're going to stay below two degrees okay and the Climate Change Committee always had the point of view that that was extremely difficult to achieve. Uh, we focused very strongly, um, and, and, and I fear 
that the world simply has to accept that it is highly likely by the end of the century we will warm by two degrees and that we therefore need an adaptation strategy as well as a mitigation uh, strategy. And how do you see the balance between those two? Well, I think the mitigation strategy on the Climate Change Committee has got to make it absolutely sure that we do not hit catastrophic levels of climate change. I, I think there's a reasonable interpretation of the evidence that an increase of two degrees is bad news, variable news across the world, but includes a balance of positives as well as negatives, and with an enormous amount of effort is manageable. An increase of four degrees, I think, takes us into territory where really extreme events occurred, and it could be potentially catastrophic. We therefore defined on the climate change that one of the crucial aims of public policy should not be to get fixated with can we be certain that it won't go below two degrees? Because I think to be certain, to be certain that you won't go below two degrees, you've probably got to go on a trajectory when your mean expectation is one degree or even less than that. And you really have to do extraordinary things to the nature of modern life to be certain of it for two degrees to be, as it were, off the edge of the probability district. We said the most crucial thing is you should keep the chance of going above four degrees less than 1%. Um, so th- that is a different, it, it is a different attitude, and I do think we need a, an adaptation approach uh, as well. The other thing to say about two degrees, and I think this is difficult, is I don't know what it will do to Northwest Europe, but it's probably manageable in Northwest Europe. Uh, we know, of course, in the UK, the whole of global warming may make us colder. I mean, you know, the fact is our regional climate models are not good enough to forecast exactly uh, what will occur. But I think in temperate maritime environments like the UK, it is unlikely that 2% global warming is a catastrophe. I think in the North Indian Plain or the Sahel, even 2 degrees can do horrendous things to, uh, to human life. But, uh, you know, I think we may be in an environment where they're unstoppable. Uh, can you, do you have a sense of if, if there was uh, an economy that was a post-growth economy, mm. that might look like. Well, not necessarily post-growth, but post-carbon. And the crucial thing is we've got to completely decarbonise electricity. The, now, there are then some highly controversial things in that. The Climate Change Committee did express support uh, for nuclear as well as wind. We took the point of view that this was a significantly, sufficiently important challenge that we had to throw everything in it. We, 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 at it. we identified that it is impossible to imagine a modern economy which has anything like the lifestyle that presently have, and of course we've got to discuss whether you've got to change lifestyle a bit, but something like the lifestyle we have, unless you completely decarbonise electricity. But we think it's possible to completely decarbonise electricity, but that by the mid-20th century we could be producing our electricity not at an average grams per kilowatt hour of 500, but an average grams per kilowatt hour of 20. Um, I think in the long term, the key technology is solar PV. And one of the great and encouraging things of the last five years is the dramatic reductions of solar PV prices. And maybe that's coming in so fast that it might even squeeze out the need to go big in nuclear uh, en route to that, which we always thought of as a transitional technology. But I think by a combination of solar PV, of wind, of uh, tidal of nuclear, but some combination of these, 
we can decarbonize electricity. I think once you can decarbonize electricity, you can produce, we, we can have the individual car. I don't think we need to get rid of the car economy. Um, I wish we had smaller, more locally environmentally friendly cars. I think it would be a tragedy if we electrify the car fleet and electrify a whole load of SUVs. Um, but, but my worries about that are almost as much about the ludicrous effect of those on, on noise, on urban environment, on urban transition. So my vision would be urban environments, great city environments, which have been very significantly not automobile-based, uh, probably, probably small private electric transport things or, uh, which you hire on the street. I mean, I think there is a sort of... A, the future of the Boris bike is also the Boris electric bike and the Boris micro-electric vehicle. These are, these are technologies which can actually work. I, I think this will make the urban environment far nicer. I mean, once we get you know, petrol and diesel fumes out of London... I mean, you know, I hope I might labor till 2050. I'll be 95 by then. I would love to see a London with hardly any petrol cars in it because it would just be a nicer place to be. It'll be a nice place to walk. It'll be a nice place to sit at streetside cafes. It'll be a nice place to sleep at night in a, you know, a more, uh, you know, attractive, cleaner air. Um, so we can electrify surface transport. We can electrify our entire railway system. We can electrify or radically improve the efficiency of the insulation of our houses. Um, we can deliver the manufactured goods that we like having, like you know, consumer goods in radically more efficient uh, electri- you know, manufacturing sites and we can power them off low-carbon electricity. So once you've defined that, and this may disappoint some of the sort of more radical end of greenery, you, you haven't fundamentally you know, changed people's lives. I mean, hopefully you've encouraged them to do sensible things like get out of whacking great silly SUVs, you know. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, they've still got personal transport mobility. I think there are some things which are very difficult. Um, and what I find most difficult is... Uh, Air flights. I mean, air flights are wonderful. Are a wonderful thing. They're one of the wonderful things of growth. I think the ability of young people to go to the other end of the world. I mean, some people only use it to lie on a beach, but other people do use it to go and meet other people, to see different cultures. I think it's one of the most. The way in which air flights have become available for the ordinary people, you know, for average income people. They're no longer just the rich. I think that's a fantastic development. But we have a huge problem here. Because whereas we can, I think, make low-carbon electricity drive an awful lot of the rest of the modern economy, um, we're never going to get a plane off the ground with a battery because we just can't compete with the enormous energy density of fossil fuels. I mean, the intriguing thing about the internal combustion engine is that it's an unbelievably inefficient engine attached to an unbelievably dense energy source. Whereas the problem with an electric engine is it's a beautifully efficient engine, which at the moment is powered by a horribly 
undems energy source. And that actually, I mean, to me, that's the, you know, one of the great challenges in business and R&D is you know, the battery. If we can drive, if, if we can have more dense, more energy-dense batteries, then we've solved this problem. But I think we're going to find it very difficult ever to get energy-dense batteries enough to take a plane off the ground. And that, that's the bit which is really tricky, and that's which I find ethically the most difficult. I mean, if I think of my own carbon footprint, I've cut it to bits in everything except flights, because I know how to cut it to bits in everything except flights. Um, uh, you know, I have very fuel-efficient cars. I cycle around town. You know, I buy local food. Uh, I don't overheat the house. I have solar uh, hot water panels. All of that's doable, but as part of my business, I fly a lot, and that's a pretty big carbon footprint. In the Portis review that came out recently, mm-hmm. they said that 97% of all food and groceries are now sold through just 8,000 supermarket outlets. But we know that the, the 3%, the local independent economy, uh, delivers more jobs per pound spent, creates more civic engagement, makes more money in the local economies. But the push for economic growth, the sort of government push for economic growth, seems to be all about growing the 97% rather than growing the 2%. Yep. How could we... Is, is this why? Well, I think the, this is where you get back to the, the economic growth issue. My point of view on economic growth is that we should not be planning to stop it, but we should be planning to stop worrying about it. Um, I think it's highly likely that even if we have a low-carbon, environmentally sustainable way of life combined with economic freedom, we will produce improvements in productivity which end up being measured in GDP per capita as growth. But I attach almost no importance to whether over the next you know, 30 years the average rate of UK growth is 1.7% per capita per annum or 1.5%. And I think it will make almost no difference to people's happiness, people's welfare, etc. And that is why I think we have allowed ourselves to become fixated with these ideas of you know, increasing growth. And we then end up saying, well, we, in order to have growth, we have to achieve the productivity improvements which are achievable through superstores, etc. I think we should simply say, no, it, it, If local communities, through local political processes, say we would rather have the vibrancy of a local town centre, the job intensity of local jobs, the local supply, a sense of community which comes out of a relationship uh, between local shops and local suppliers, um, I don't think it should be for national government to say... No, you can't do that. I think that's a decision that local people should make. And I think they should make that not terrified by you know, stories about the need for growth. Now, I think the bigger problem when you get that local argument then becomes twofold. It becomes you will have some local people who just want the cheap food. Yeah. And that's, you know, so let's be clear, that development of the superstores, the somewhat anonymous out-of-town superstores, has been driven in part by, I think, a mistaken national fixation with minute differences in national productivity growth. And we have the ability to put a stop to that. But you've still got the problem of, even once you localise the decisions, 
you know, some people want their cheap food, and that's not, you know, it's quite difficult to say to them no. Now, I hope we will have an environment where there is an increasing focus on on quality and quality of experience. Um, but I think one of the things that goes against that is the rise of inequality. Um, in an environment of an increasing inequality and the bombardment of people with messages about what the materialist life can give, people are, not surprisingly, fixated with how, or some people get fixated with, how far up that spectrum of an unequal distribution of income they can crawl. And therefore, you know, want the capacity to have cheap food so they can spend money on all the other things that advertising is telling them they need to have. Um, I, think, I think the rise, the continual rise of inequality is quite uh, corrosive of our ability to pursue shared collective objectives. And I suppose at the moment when you have communities that say when you have the majority who say we don't want a supermarket, for example, opening in the high street or out of town, you know, at the moment the planning system is unable to distinguish between uh, an independent shop and a, and, a, and a chain shop. Do you think that, it, that there should be that, that it could be possible to make that kind of distinction, or is that just not feasible? The answer is I don't know. I haven't thought about that detail of the balance between chain shops, you know, you're, you're now talking about not a superstore versus small stores in the high street, but the stores in the high street being independent versus the stores in the high street being chains. Um, it's quite interesting. If you look actually in London at the high market, at the upmarket end of, you know, the Marlborough high streets of where you have an intelligent, dominant landlord and intelligent dominant landlords have of course the right to accept as you know, tenants whoever they like they in order to create an environment where people want to go shopping and therefore where their rents back to them are high actually do have a strategy of not allowing it to be entirely dominated by the chain events but chain stores but having a mix of different types of store which creates an environment where people you know, want to go now. That is that is a very high end, uh, you know, high income, high price environment. Um, and I don't know whether that implies when you're dealing with you know a, a country town high street. Um, but that is that's the landlord making a decision. Um, whether the local authority should be have the right to look at it. I, mean, I fundamentally think they should have the right to make the decision. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a. I mean, I think the general point of view about... Uh, one general thing about Britain is we, we have been... Uh, we're an incredibly centralised political structure. We became that over the years. It was cross-party. All of the parties talked about localism and all of them slowly degraded um, the local you know, uh, decision-making. Um, we both you know, ended up with most of local government finance coming from national government. Uh, huge, 
huge step in that direction was the result of moving towards the idiotic poll tax. Uh, in order to get out of that, one of the things that national government had to do was increase yet more the extent to which you know, it provided the money, and once it provides the money, it thinks it has a right to set the decisions. And I don't know how we roll that back. I mean, I think across much of Europe, where there are areas which have been more effective at maintaining a sense of a local identity and a local vibrant community, it is often embedded in local <coughs> political power structures. The commune, the, 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 the mayor of the small town in France, um, you know, uh, Germany's decentralised systems. Um, we're a very centralised political system and it would be good to roll it back, but extremely difficult. Um, Jay Rayner. How are we doing here? Two more questions. Two more questions, yes. Um, Jay Rayner in The Observer recently said that we should uh, import apples and land from New Zealand because the carbon emissions of doing so were less, that New Zealand had a better landscape and climate for rearing apples and land. How do you, from a climate perspective, you were talking before about local food... Well, I think think, think we've got to be... I think we've got to be fact-based about this. Um... And I think people then have to make decisions which are their own trade-off on the most important things. If it is the case that everything combined, right, both the transport you know, and the nature of the production back in New Zealand, that New Zealand lamb and uh, apples do turn out to be low carbon, I think it's important that people know that and people you know, have a right to make you know, that trade-off. I'm sure there are many, many other um, uh, vegetables and parts of food where that will not be the case, um, where uh, the nature of the transportation cost will favour um, the local. And therefore, I think, you know, um, I tend to favour you know, local food because my gut feel is it's probably lower carbon. But you know, if somebody could convince me that New Zealand were apples were low carbon, then I might, and if I like the apples, uh, and if they were organic and therefore supporting biodiversity, I might, I might still buy them. So I don't think we should get sort of absolutely, you know, fixated on one or other dimension of these things. I think on the other hand, you know, flown in raspberries from across the world in January you know don't tick any boxes and we sort of know that my last question was that you've spent years surrounded by climate change and reading all the reports and the science and everything what keeps you going do you think this is a solvable problem What, what, what sustains you through this well I'm a little bit out of it now because I've been dominated by the financial system for the last year. And, but when I was doing the Climate Change Committee till last year, last March, and I used to spend about two days a month on it, I would always come home at the end of that saying what an enjoyable day I had had compared with struggling with the problems of the financial system. And I think I'd make the following distinction. On one hand... Climate change is far more worrying, but also 
far more understandable. That the, what happened in the financial system is a complete self-inflicted wound. Right? There's no reason why this crisis had to occur. We're not, it, it wasn't imposed on us from throughout, from war, from etc. Climate change is a real external constraint, right? Human beings have wanted to grow, wanted to get more prosperous. Nobody knew this when we started off on that path a couple of hundred years ago. The achievements of industrial capitalism are fantastic, but unfortunately it turns out that one of the things that it relies on, which is digging, digging fossil fuels out of the ground, you know, is going to do some nasty things. So it is externally imposed, but at least you don't feel, oh my God, we've done this to ourselves. It's a, it's a real problem. And it's, it's a real problem that has to be overcome. It's intellectually fascinating. The complexity of it is intellectually fascinating. And it is solvable. Right? We are capable of having low-carbon lifestyles which preserve that which is important about the achievements of the extraordinary transformation of the last 200 years. And... Uh, so at one level it's frustrating how difficult it is, but at least one is, one is kept going by the fact that it is doable. <laughs>